This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to episode number 11 of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Andrew Robinson. This is Navigating the Newsroom. This is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO TV series, The Newsroom. We've reached the end, good sir. I can tell you that this podcast is so great that our end took an extra episode than the actual show we're talking about. Yes, yes, because we, we did do a little introductory episode before the show started. And actually, uh, that reminds me, I, I have a little announcement to make for our listeners. This actually is not the last episode of Navigating the Newsroom. Even though we're going to be talking about the season finale of, uh, of the show, uh, I'm actually going to release a special bonus episode in a few days. Uh, and that's going to be a conversation with uh, Dr. Robert Thompson, who is an author, a professor, um, and, and widely considered to be one of the country's foremost experts in television and pop culture. Um, and he knows all about the newsroom and all about Aaron Sorkin's work. And so I, I had a good talk with him about the newsroom and, and sort of what its place is in the grand scheme of television. So that conversation will be going up in a few days. So be on the lookout for that. Andrew, it's been quite a season. We've had some ups and some downs. As always, why don't we start off with you? Just give us a brief recap of the finale. The finale was titled The Greater Fool, and it was written by Aaron Sorkin and our old friend Greg Matola. How did it all turn out for Will McAvoy in the end? Um, so, so, so this week in the newsroom, um, we get a bit, uh, actually a lot of somewhat resolutions to what we've been seeing throughout the season. Um, the most notable of which having to deal with the wire, the, the phone hacking scandal of TMI, where the newsroom has to throw away the story because they they discover something that makes their source a, a witness that they can't trust. Solomon Hancock, due to this this decision from the newsroom, decides to commit suicide, and it pushes Charlie, Will, and Mackenzie to fight the fight that he was trying to and confront Leona and Reese Lansing, and. The newsroom has gotten their wish. They've gotten the the heads to back off, and they're going to get to do their show. So we can look forward to at least a season two of the newsroom before we start seeing more complaints from the head office. Um, otherwise, there is a lot of resolution to the, to the relationship stories. There's the Maggie and Don story, where we find out that Don is going to commit to Maggie by asking her to move in with him. And... We see some some new story between Don and Sloane, um, two characters who have had a couple brushes in the last few weeks, and kind of an interesting twist there in that we find out that Sloane seems to have had some form of an interest in Don. I don't know if you saw any of that coming, Andrew, did you? I did not. That was the surprise, and we'll talk about that later on. Yeah, and also more of the gym a la Maggie versus Lisa conundrum as to how does he handle the fact that he wants one but has the other and doesn't know how to juggle the two as to what's going to happen and all of that happens. Um, And even further, we go into a bit of a hint towards Mackenzie and Will um, and she finally confesses that she was actually there during the pilot episode holding up her notepad egging on Will basically berate a 20-year-old. It only took her 15 months to confess. (laughs) And also, I think my favorite part of this episode, um, in which it ends, where Will recognizes a young lady across the office who is apparently interviewing for an internship, and it turns out it is said 20-year-old. And we'll talk more about that scene later, because I quite like that scene. 
Um, but I think that's all that happened this week. I don't know if I missed anything. So as usual, Andrew, tell me. Did I miss anything? Um, I think the only thing you missed is that Will is in the hospital for a brief period oh, yeah. of time. Oh, he, yeah. He's in the hospital for a brief period of time. And, you know, because of something related to his ulcer and some antidepressants he was taking, it's not really clear if he was intentionally trying to, uh, you know, hurt himself or if it was just an accident. Uh, but anyways, the, the, the piece by Brian Brenner finally came out in New York Magazine, and it was such a brutal takedown of Will that he started self-medicating and eventually wound up in the hospital. But other than that, I think you pretty much covered everything. Um, Here's how this episode is going to work. We've had some great guests on this season of Navigating the Newsroom. And so what we've done is we've invited a few of them back to give their brief thoughts on this finale and season one as a whole. So this episode is going to kind of be intercut with some clips of of them giving their thoughts on the show. I, I want to start off now with conversation with William Bibiani. He is the senior film editor over at CraveOnline.com. You can find his work there, and you can follow him on Twitter at Twitter.com slash William Bibiani. Let's see what he had to say about the finale. My thought was it's a nonstop, pulse-pounding, more of the same. This finale is... Very, very frustrating for him because it's basically just another damned episode of the series. There's really nothing terribly special about it. Everything happened pretty much the way we all predicted it would. The Solomon Hancock story didn't go anywhere because they had to make that up. So we knew it couldn't go anywhere. Uh, So the only thing they could get out of it was a resolution of the other part of that storyline, which is getting Reese Lansing off everyone's back, which has the effect of neutralizing the biggest threat of the series. So we have, there's no real cliffhanger to go into season two on, except now that there are a hundred death threats against Will, which mean absolutely nothing because those have never been tangible. Those have always been sort of an intellectual uh, uh, element of suspense. So there's really nothing, really nothing to this episode. Oh, we did a big episode against the tea party again. Are you saying that you're, you're, you're not on the edge of your seat to find out if Jim and Maggie will ever um, get together? No, Maggie and, okay. If they haven't resolved that by the end of the first season, they can't get together until the end of the series. That's what that means. This is the most formulaic trite. And really arbitrary love story. If you remember even in the first episode, why is he in love with Maggie? Because Emily Mortimer told him to be. It's like, you should fall in love with her. It'll be great for this show. And then and this constant, I mean, I've said this before. I think we even said this on the episode in, uh, of your show in which I appeared. The, the, the newsroom's constant obsession with its own ins and outs and, and gossipy relationship nonsense is – a really stark hypocritical contrast to the series itself, which claims that gossip news just distracts from everything that really matters in the world. So when Mac gets obsessed, don't you think they should be together? It's actually really hypocritical of her and does not do anything for the series overall raison d'etre, if you will. Uh, So no, I, I couldn't, care less and it seems obvious that now they'll never be together until the end of the show and I think I wrote in my review which should be up now by the time this goes up that if if Jim and Maggie are are this generation's Ross and Rachel one of them needs a better haircut so Andrew what do you think about that idea that now the newsroom has kind of written itself into a corner and there's no longer a compelling villain or a, a, a really strong threat moving into season two. I mean, there's the death threats that will undoubtedly arise against Will, but other than that, there's nothing concrete. Do you think that's a problem? There, I don't see that there's a problem because there never really was one. The hacking storyline, in the grand scheme of things, it was just another story, um, and it's no long, It's no more a problem than the BP oil spill was 10 weeks ago when we just started this podcast. Um, it's just something that they want to report on. It just happened to affect them personally, and it was just a little hurdle that they had to jump over in the office. It's, it's the, it is this weird thing in that the fact that Sorkin integrated that piece of news, which, while it did happen, but not in this manner, it was kind of odd to see like that but i guess it felt nice only in its is it in its final moment when you got that 
final zinger when um, Leona Lansing opens up the envelope to see a recipe for stew beef. Right. I, I, you know, I, I didn't really mind how the, that whole storyline wrapped up. I kind of like that now Leona isn't just this two-dimensional cardboard villain. We see that she actually does have a good side, and in the future she's actually going to be working with Charlie and Will to hopefully stick it to the tea party. Um, and part of that, I think, is because, yes, they can blackmail her. But also because I think, as, as Charlie tells her, you know, deep down, she really is a good person and she really does want to tell the news how it is. The, the, the main problem with that subplot, I think, is that as William Bibiani mentioned there, it, it, it wasn't a surprise. It was all very predictable. When, when Charlie got that first call and it was revealed that there was a scandal going on, I thought that it might turn out to be really interesting. But I actually thought that that was one of the weaker subplots of the latter part of the season because, it, it, I mean, what, it wasn't surprising. I mean, as soon as Charlie found out Reese was involved back in episode eight, I think it was, it was very predictable that that is what would be the key to getting Will out of this situation with Leona. And so it went down pretty much as I expected, and I wasn't really surprised at all. So I agree that that was definitely one of the weaker parts of the episode. I mean, we do get one scene closer to Leona and Charlie getting it on. That is true. I thought about that when I was watching the show. You know, it starts out with uh, with Will mentioning that Leona should do a spread in Playboy, and then the next thing you know, she and Charlie are best buddies, almost. So, hmm, maybe Charlie's interest was piqued, you never know. I mean, it, it, it got to him that she went, she admitted defeat, and she's now ready to go and spank her son in the corner. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what will ultimately have to happen because this is an Aaron Sorkin show. You know, Charlie will and Leona will decide that they want to be together, but then it'll turn out that they're dating other people and, and it'll be this big mess. There will be all these obstacles preventing them from finally getting on because that's that's how Aaron Sorkin works. On a, on a, on a quick side note, um, just because this episode had a bit of a time jumping back and forth. I remember a few weeks back during episode 8 when the whole plotline started, the main deal that was in that episode was the announcement of Osama Bin Laden's death. And I brought up a lot of things, a lot of news items, which I'm like, why are, why won't they cover that? And during one of the meetings in this week's episode, um, you heard I heard someone offhandedly mention the London riots, which I brought up in that episode, and I was kind of happy to hear that, even just as an offshoot mention. Yes, yes, that did not go unnoticed by the show. Um, and get, get, getting back to that whole Osama Bin Laden episode, one thing I did like about the finale is that they brought in that element of Will getting high on the air, and that did actually play a role in the ultimate confrontation with Leona. And I kind of liked how that came back into play because at the time it just seemed like a really, really random comedic, you know, slapstick moment put in just to sort of lighten the mood. But I, I, I liked how that became part of this larger subplot that was going on. I mean, it was nice to see Leona admit how how great it was that he was able to pull that off while completely stoned right and i i did think it was i, I did find the scene with Mackenzie and the gossip columnist i can't remember her name off the nina. Top of my head but nina that's right i i, I did find the scene uh, between the two of them pretty interesting and again that was another scene that sort of showed that there's multiple sides to the Nina character. She Maybe she isn't just this terrible human being spreading all these lies. You know, she told Mackenzie that she really does want to do the right thing. And at the end, she did delete the voicemail where, you know, Will admitted to, to getting high. So the question is, is that really who she is? Well, she had just been fired, so she had no purpose for it. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, but when... The question is, in, the, in that conversation with McKinsey, was she being serious or was she just trying to manipulate McKinsey into being a second source? 
No, I think she was def she definitely knew what she was doing. She was at least trying to do she she was trying to get as much as possible out there. Um, to allow for Mackenzie and Will and the gang to all figure out what was going on. Um, because it seemed, and it was very obvious in that final scene when she was listening back to the recording and eventually deleting it, that she, she realized how, how wrong all of this was. Um, maybe it was the, the pep talk that Will gave her in the bar that night. Um, seared into the back of her mind, but something got to her and finally made her think that maybe she does need to get on this mission to civilize. Right. So, I mean, it only took, what, 10 episodes? But now we're finally starting to get some some character development and some three-dimensionality to a lot of these these people. It's slow going, but maybe for season two, we'll actually have a more nuanced and complicated show. Let's move on to the next topic of discussion. You brought up earlier that you were really, really surprised by the revelation that Sloan kind of has a thing for Dawn. I was also very, very surprised by that. I think most people were. And perhaps that is a good segue into a conversation I had with one of our other guests, Gwen Reyes from Film School Rejects. Uh, that was one thing that she really thought was interesting about the finale. So here's my conversation with her about uh, the finale of the show and season one as a whole. I really, I loved them in the episode with them on the plane, the one that we talked about before. Um, I thought I just had never really thought of them together before. And I think that, that was kind of that moment where even they had never really thought of themselves as being together before. But it just, I just felt like Don really needs to focus on his own relationship or focus on himself and not jump. I mean, I know it's television and I know it's not real life, but just, I, I kind of felt like that was a little forced, even though they have a really great chemistry, even though they are very interesting um, I wish that there was a better way of introducing it so that it wasn't that Don's constantly thinking about the next girl that he could be betting. But I think that what was actually the most satisfying thing for me, even though it's not been a relationship I've really cared very much for, was finally getting to see uh, Jim and Maggie have a moment where they both realized that even though they really, really love each other, really care for each other, they're just never going to be able to be together right now. It's just like timing. And I liked that. I thought that that character, that storyline had been kind of boring and just a little too far fetched, but leading up into that moment where they're standing and they kiss and he wants to be with her, but he's with Lisa and she wants to be with him, but he's with Don. I thought that was a really nice, very well done thing. That's going to kind of bring them into next year of kind of living with their choices as a whole, um, I think I still think that nothing has really lived up to the the excitement of the third episode. I think that's still been my favorite episode of the season, the one with um, the tea party episode. And I liked coming back to that and Leanna seeing that maybe her choices to align with the tea party wasn't necessarily the best decision. But as a whole, I I think I'm one of the rare ones like. I, that who actually really genuinely likes the show and is interested and follows it. I think a lot of people were really into the show girls earlier this season. And I could not, I, I was like a bad boyfriend in that a relationship with that show where I was like, I keep coming back for more, even though it keeps hurting me. Whereas this show, like I genuinely, I like that. It's kind of boring. I like that. It's a little bit, I mean, it's got a faster, it's got a fast pace, but it is kind of a genuinely boring show. I mean, it doesn't really go anywhere. It's takes 18 months to get any of these characters built. And a lot of the interesting things that happen on the show are actually what happens in the week between the show. It's like the stuff we're not seeing is the more interesting stuff. Cause we keep coming back to these characters and they've, they've evolved, but we haven't really seen them evolve. We haven't seen their process. We see the result. I'm not really sure if it's worth the wait, but it kind of, it allows, for some reason, it's a show that kind of, it's smart, but it allows me to kind of turn my brain off a little bit. All right. So, Andrew, what did you think about that whole um, revelation that Sloane has a crush on Don? I mean, it's clear that Gwen was surprised. I was surprised. I, I get the impression you were surprised as well. Does it work in the context of the show? 
I think it kind of does. I think it's a weird thing because we spent the entire of this season looking at Don and Maggie and pretty much saying how wrong Don is for Maggie. Or at least I have. I, I can't put words in your mouth. Um, Pretty much saying how wrong Don is for Maggie. Um, because he, he's not, he's not that sweet guy that Jim is, that we're all looking and saying, Jim and Maggie, they should be perfect together. Um, Sloane, on the other hand, is a completely different character. She is, um, unlike the bubbly and effervescent, um, Maggie, who is prone to mistakes of the slightly naive nature, um, Sloane is a bit more cold and calculated. She does have the other hand of being a bit socially inept, um, which she admits to repeatedly. But once that idea is thrown out there of Sloane saying, and it's such a wonderful way to put it, where um, she she gives this wonderful bit of advice to Don, and Don, uh, Don's reaction is just to say, how are you still single? And her her response is because you haven't asked me yet, and it's it's such a wonderful way to put it. Like I I have to give it to Sorkin. While we can knock him for all of his story complaints, um, he does know how to make dialogue just sear into the back of your mind and just stay there. It, it, once that's thrown out there, it, you as the viewer is immediately adding up the the figures and going that might just work. Those two might just work out, and it might just be appearing in heaven. It's kind of tragic the way it ends up, and I guess we have to hope and pray for Don and Maggie to either explode quickly or work out for the long run. I don't know. It's interesting that you put it that way, because I I think we both liked that reveal, but I think we're coming out at it from completely opposite perspectives. Because while you're saying to yourself, yes, you know, Sloane and Dawn could be a good couple, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, the reason that reveal works is because it allows us to see that Dawn really does care for Maggie. And he is going to commit to her, and he is going to resist this new temptation <laughs> that has been thrown into his life. Look, look, Andrew, just because a character is showing some form of reserve because he's made a decision, it doesn't make it a right decision. <laughs> That's true. And and you know what? You're probably right. Maybe later on down the road, Sorkin will take the formulaic route and Don will end up with Sloane and Jim will end up with Maggie. But until that actually happens, I actually think that that scene with Sloan was very, very well done. Because, well, first of all, as you mentioned, up until this point, she's been characterized as very, very socially inept. Now, not only do we see that it's not that she's, you know, uncomfortable around men, it's just that she has her eye on one man in particular, but we also get to see that she actually does understand people. And when she does tell Don, you know, you you are a good person, and somewhere along the lines, someone told you you weren't, and that sort of colored how you view things, but, but you really are a good person, you know, I do think that that is true, and I think that that was right on the money, and that's sort of how I felt about Don for the whole season, and why he's my favorite character, because I, I do feel like he is a good person deep down, and he does love Maggie, and he just really can't accept that. Um, and that's why he's a total douchebag most of the time. So I, I actually really, really loved that scene. And again, I think it just confirms that Don does care for Maggie. He really wants to be with her. That's why he's asking her to move in with him. It's not just because he, think he, he thinks he should. Maybe we'll just have to agree to disagree on that. No, no, no. I'm. I, let, let me get this straight. While while I'm completely going on the side of saying that they might not fit well together, and at the, in, at the end of the day, it would be cataclysmic for at the very least for Maggie. Um, it is an interesting development to see Don, and it is very obvious in this episode a tad bit more vulnerable than he has been before, where where he fee where as I've said before, he always seems in a position of power over Maggie, um, relationship and professional and all of those ways. It's it is a nice touch to see how it's developed this way, but at the same time, I still worry. 
and I still feel like it's just beating around the bush to get to that eventual end. But you see, I don't think Maggie being with Don would necessarily be a terrible thing. I think that he cares a lot about her. I think that she does care a lot about him. And, you know, one of the things that Bibbs mentioned earlier um, in that clip of our conversation is that we have to remember, Jim really is only going after Maggie because Mackenzie told him to. No, hold on, hold on, uh, hold on. Um, that is complete bullshit. He, yes, he went after Maggie initially because someone put the thought into his mind, but nobody, and I don't care how two-dimensional Sorkin might just write these characters, nobody goes after someone for, what, a year plus without having some some self-interest in it. Right. I mean, I, I do think it's clear that obviously Jim cares for Maggie a lot and that Maggie does have feelings for him. But just because that's the case, I don't think that that means that her relationship with Dawn is doomed. I, I really don't. I actually think that they make a good couple. And, you know, it, it's interesting because I think last week or the week before, you said that you thought Maggie was going to end up alone at the end of the season. Now it turns out it, it actually was almost Jim who ended up alone. You know, if he had told Lisa the truth about who he had gone to see that night, he would be the one alone now at the end of the season. And he'd be the one with the rotating door of women walking in and out of the newsroom. <laughs> Why didn't it happen, Sorkin? Why? Because uh, Sorkin, with all of the accusations of sexism <laughs> being thrown at him, I don't think that would be a decision that he would make for season two. <laughs> Unless he just wanted to sort of give the finger to his critics. I mean, everybody needs pretty ladies in their, in their shows. <laughs> I like pretty ladies. <laughs> That's actually a good segue into um, our, our next guest. We had her on when we discussed the episode Bullies, which was the Sloan-centered episode. Allison Loring from Film School Rejects. I, I spoke briefly with her about the finale and about season one. And when we had her on the show last time, the newsroom's depiction of women was one of the main topics of conversation. And it, it seemed like that really, really bothered her. But here's what she had to say about how things ultimately turned out. So for the finale, I have to say my knee-jerk reaction when it ended, everything was all said and done, I literally thought to myself, I will not be tuning in for season two, which devastated me because as we discussed, I was so into the pilot. So for me to do that kind of a 180, I didn't really see coming. I think it just, you know, I know I've talked about it before. It came down for me. I just don't know that I can watch these women flail about anymore. Um, I'm sure it's, you know, Sorkin might have a plan for all of them. And I know I say I'm not going to watch season two and I'll probably see people start talking about it and then I'll get sucked back into what the characters are doing um, since I did get through the first season. But I'm just disappointed with the way that the women are behaving. You know, Emily Mortemeyer's character, all she really could deal with at the end of things was what did Will's message say? You know, what, what was the rest of his message to her, um, which always seems to be her preoccupation. And I get that they have a history and things like that, but it just seems to be wearing thin. I feel like Alison Pill, especially in the finale, was even more manic, even more unhinged which is fine. I get it. We all have those moments. And I did kind of think her little rant towards the Sex and the City bus was funny. And it, it was funny in an ironic way on the heels of her kind of accidentally reenacting the opening to that show. But her choices just do not make sense to me. I mean, she has this moment with Jim. And even when she goes over to Don's and he presents her with the key to his place and it's his way of committing to her, she even says, oh, I already have a key to your place. So it's almost as though she just needed the grand gesture, which to me felt empty. I want them to go back to being professional career women, you know, succeeding in the newsroom, maybe having some manic moments outside of that. But there's got to be that balance when they're constantly that unhinged. It just makes me crazy. Okay. So, Andrew... From what Allison said, um, it sounds like that was her least favorite part of the episode and the series as a whole was just Sorkin's depiction of women. Do you think that that has improved over the course of the season? I mean, when you compare the finale 
to, to, to the pilot. Is there any major difference, or is Sorkin still in many ways just a sexist pig? Well, I mean, I've been kind of, for the most part, um, on the side of saying it's not a hundred percent sexist, but he does he does have his moments. Um, this episode it kind of follows that same trope. The, it it's not really that sexist, I find, but it does have its moments where people can point and stare and say things like like for example the the thing we've brought up over and over again where he wants to have his cake and eat it too with Mackenzie. Mackenzie, um, she's in the hospital with Will and she decides to playfully hit the IV drip to only see it fall out and then she has this this whimsically odd moment where she's fumbling over it and figuring out what to do and you just see Will press on the nurse's button kind of judgmentally staring at Mackenzie going like how did you make it this long in life like how did you not die out like the dinosaurs but I mean with all of these things that happened in this episode inclusive of the Sloan revelation Jim's relationship as well as the Maggie and sex in the city reference moment where Maggie kind of lashes out at that that stereotypical woman the stereotypical New York 20 year old out in the city it's it, it kind of does its best to stand in the face of the image of women the stereotypical image of women in television and i think it does the complete opposite of where we started in the season i'm not sure i would go that far and say that the the, the show has done a complete reversal i do think that there are still some many 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 problems i still think that sloan is by far the strongest female character i think mckinsey is by far the worst female character on the show um, you, you know, you mentioned that scene with Maggie and the, and the whole Sex in the City bus tour, and that was so over the top and so coincidental, and it was just such this, mel- the, 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 you know, she runs off in the rain or whatever, and then Jim has to run after her, and it's so melodramatic. It just kind of confirmed conclusion I reached last week, which is that the show in many ways really is just a sitcom and it's supposed to be a comedy, and it is very melodramatic, and in many ways it is very cliche. Does that excuse a lot of the show's slights towards women? No, but at the same time, I also think it's um, perhaps, it's arguably a, a, a more appropriate context for them. And you, you brought up the whole thing with McKinsey and the IV and how she's a klutz. This thought just occurred to me, and maybe, maybe I'm, to- maybe this is totally out there and not the case at all. But let let me propose this theory. Before you go go any further, um, yes, it's completely out there, and you're completely wrong, as you generally are. That's how I feel, anyways. <laughs> okay. Well, um, Mackenzie has that whole thing with the IV. And Maggie also at one point looks very tired because she's been working so hard, so she trips. And Maggie is also a a pretty klutzy character at times. And I'm wondering if Sorkin's overall plan, you know, as he's writing these two characters, is if he's trying to draw this parallel, if he's intentionally drawing a parallel between Mackenzie and Maggie, where Mackenzie is the talented but very, very klutzy executive producer who didn't end up with the man she wanted. And Maggie is the klutzy associate producer slowly climbing the ranks who still has the opportunity to end up with the man she loves. Maybe that is Sorkin's plan, and that's been his plan the whole time. That sounds completely plausible, but you're you're in danger of justifying the number one thing which you've been hating on for the entire season. I know. And I, I, you know, I don't think that that excuses it. Um, but I do think that, you know, if that is what, what Sorkin's plan has been, I do think that that is a decent plan. And I kind of like that idea. I just wish he didn't have to appear so condescending while he was doing it. It's an interesting display. That's definitely true. Is Maggie the next McKenzie? It would explain why McKenzie has such an attachment to her from the beginning. Right, right. I mean, she really does seem to like Maggie, and she's cons- she's very, very concerned 
that Maggie won't end up with Jim. And she's convinced that Maggie needs to end up with Jim, and that won't happen, and she'll kind of throw it away, kind of like how Mackenzie threw away her relationship with, with Will. Gather ye rosebuds. Yes, gather ye rosebuds. So it'll be interesting to see if that parallel continues um, in season two, or maybe I'm just trying to justify these flaws and I'm coming up with something that isn't really there. Who knows? But uh, b- before we move on to our main topic of this episode, which, which we'll be looking at this season as a whole, I want to talk about that 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 scene you brought up earlier in which we have this intern, this woman who's applying for an intern, and it turns out to be the same girl from the pilot episode who asked Will that question about what makes America the greatest country. You said that you really, really liked that scene. I have to confess, I loved it as well. Even though it's completely over the top, it's this huge coincidence that she would be applying for an internship there. Major life-changing coincidences are just happenstance on the newsroom. So setting that aside, I really did think that that was a fantastic scene when he basically tells her, you are the best thing about America. Young people who can learn from their mistakes and strive to be better are what's great about this country. Tell me more about how you reacted to that scene and and what you really liked about it. I mean, you're completely right, and it kind of harkens back to one of Sorkin's basic ideas for the show, or what we like to think is his basic idea for the show. And he has Will say it in, I think it was episode four, um, back when Nina started out in the show, and we were getting all the tabloid pieces, where he brings up the mission to civilize. And he even goes further when the character is asked, um, how is that going? He says, there's little progress, but I'm in it for the long haul or something like that. Progress is slow, but I'm in it for the long haul. Um, And this is the perfect proof of progress is slow, but I'm in it for the long haul. This show started out with Will berating this child, um, letting her know that you have to come to the realization that you can't live by these generalizations that are thrown out there by the world who might not who know probably knows a lot less than what you do and the only way you can better yourself is to edify yourself better and to let yourself know that there's always more for you to to criticize to think about to analyze to create create better opinions of what's happening around you And the moment that you can see he sees her back in his life, back in his world, his response to that question, all it's basically saying is that while I may have said that to you a year ago, at the end of the day, this country, we're still great. People, and it doesn't even have to be America, it's people. People are still great because we still have the potential to be better, no matter how how bad we are right now. Right. And, you know, I think that this scene is indicative that Will has changed to a degree, even though he's still condescending, he's still very arrogant. You know, I'm still not sure he's a very likable character. I do think it's safe to say that he has changed a little bit because in the pilot, if you'll recall, at one point he and McKinsey had an argument in which McKinsey asked him, do you think the American people are stupid, essentially, and uneducated and ignorant, and that's never going to change. And he basically said, yes, that is the case. People are stupid, and there's no getting better. And McKinsey's whole stance from the very beginning has been that even when things are bad, there's always hope. And people can always change, and people can always better themselves. And this scene here in the finale is when we finally see that she was right. And Will, to a certain extent, has to admit that she was right. Because here is this person who has changed and who does want to better themselves and be a greater fool, as she puts it. So I do think that the character of Will is slowly changing. Maybe by season two, I'll start to like him a little bit more. But, you know, at the very least, he is progressing. 
So I think that's a good thing. He's evolving. He's becoming a much better Will. Yes, hopefully, hopefully. That brings up the the whole issue of Mackenzie and how she was there in that scene in the pilot that started everything. I really hated how they revealed at the end of the pilot that she was there. And I still think that they really didn't need to tell us that in the pilot. It was totally unnecessary. It didn't add anything. As Will basically screams at her in this episode, why didn't you tell me 15 months ago that you were there? It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I I think that reveal would have worked better if Sorkin had left it for the finale, left it for this episode when the audience could finally realize, along with Will, that she had been there and she was right all along. I continue to disagree. Um, I, I don't really think of it as something that's as much wrong as it is right. It, it's, it's a fine scene, and I like it for the moment it gives me between Mackenzie and Will, and the fact that... Well, well I mean, did, did, you, did you even remember that, it had, that that had been revealed in the pilot? I remember. Um, I remember it, it, was at the, it was at the elevator. She was trying to show it to him, and he got out quicker. Um, yeah, I had totally forgotten it, and then when it came up again in the finale, I was like, oh, yeah... That had happened. Why did that scene need to be in the pilot if you're just going to, to, to bring it up again here at the end? I mean, I just see it as a moment between these two characters. And once again, inching further towards them coming back together as a romantic relationship, as they should be. And, you know, I should clarify, I don't have, I don't have a problem with this scene in the finale. My issue is the fact that it was in the pilot. And I just don't think that was necessary. And I think... As a, as a whole, that idea that she was there from the beginning, um, I think that it would, it would have had much more impact if it was a surprise to the audience here in the finale. All right, is there, is there anything else you would like to say about this finale specifically before we talk about the season as a whole? Um, I guess the, the only thing that this finale offers otherwise is... The actual news broadcast and how it's how it's how it's presented. Actually, you know what? More more or less, I want to talk. Well, no, I should leave that for the season as a whole. Um, but I just want to send out a, a wonderful congratulations to Greg Matolo, who directed this episode. Because while I've had my complaints over the season, it's been very evident that the that the episodes which I most enjoy happen to be directed by Greg Matolo. Um, and I was so happy to see him back for this episode. Um, the way that we intercut between, um, the end of the week and the beginning when Will has gone to the hospital and things are going weird, it just allowed the episode's narrative to progress in a way that served the comedy and served, um, the, the storylines as in such a great way. And if you watch some of the other episodes, non-Greg Matola episodes, it's quite obvious that they are very difficult on you sometimes. I agree that Greg Matola was a great addition to the show. I think he directed, what, three or four episodes of, of the I season? Think it was, I think it was three. He did the pilot. He did um, the 112th Congress. This one. I have to say... Overall, I really, really liked the finale. You know, once, as I said earlier, once you sort of accept that the newsroom isn't really going to achieve what I think it wants to achieve, and once you accept that it does have some problems and it is in many ways a a typical workplace comedy, I do think the show is enjoyable. And I did like, with the exception of that major subplot about the hacking i i did really like most of the other things that were in this finale and the different twists i do disagree with you though about the episode structure i really didn't think that that was necessary and i do think that that is a device that the newsroom has used way too frequently over the course of the season it worked really well in 112th congress and i'm not sure it was necessary at, at, at any other point in the season. Here, 
I really think it works to the episode's disadvantage because the whole thing about Will being in the hospital and at one point saying, I'm not going to come back. And the weight of that idea that maybe Will won't come back to Newsnight and maybe the newsroom as a show could spin off in this completely different direction in season two, I think that's a really, really heavy and interesting idea. But because of the way the episode is structured, we already knew that he was going to come back. So there was no suspense. It wasn't, uh, you know, there was no collective sigh of relief when Charlie and McKenzie finally persuaded him to come back because we already knew it was going to happen. So I, I do think that that structure robbed the episode of a lot of dramatic tension. Well, I mean, if you want to if you want to get literal, we all know he's going to come back because we know there's a season 2. Um Well, no, but but we don't we don't know is he going to continue at AWN? Is he is something going to happen where he has to go somewhere else? I mean, to 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 bring up another example, uh, spoilers for Mad Men, but at one point in Mad Men, you know, they go off and form their uh, a completely separate agency. And it kind of takes the show off into this whole new direction. And it's not inconceivable that the newsroom could do something similar and just send Will off in a, in a different direction. Wouldn't it be awesome to have a Will, a Will McAvoy as a morning television host? There you go. <laughs> yes, Will McAvoy doing a morning television show. You know, that is an option that could have gone through the audience's mind and it would have given us something to consider if we didn't know, based on the episode structure, that that's not what was going to happen. So I, I, I do think that the structure was a problem. I kind of enjoyed it for the main fact of the, the deciding factor as what brought him back. And as far as I'm concerned, while some would say it's the phone hacking discovery, um, I think it's more to do with the actual news and seeing, for example, that moment where the nurse comes in and tells Will his her story about her aunt, um, which we then see to be the top news story um, in the intercut news that we're seeing throughout the episode. And I kind of like that. I mean, yeah, you might be right that it does take away suspense in his crisis of faith, but at the same time, I didn't have much worry in that to begin with. Okay, that that's fair. Well, well, let's dive into the our final segment of the show when we give our general thoughts on the season as a whole. And Andrew, before you and I chime in with with our thoughts, I'm going to go ahead and play a fairly lengthy clip. It's gonna, probably going to be about five minutes, and it's a clip you're, you're going to hear. Uh, William Bibiani from Crave Online and uh, Gwyn Reyes and Allison Loring from Film School Rejects talk about what their favorite part of the season was and what their favorite element of the show is, followed by their least favorite aspect of the show. So I'm going to go ahead and play that. And then, Andrew, you and I can give our thoughts on what the best and worst parts of the newsroom are. So here's that clip. The best thing about the newsroom is at its heart, it is an underdog story. And in the moments when they really sell that, when they really make it seem like here are people overcoming all odds, when, you know, teenage daydream kicks in and everyone just goes to work, then it's exciting. Then it's a little bit thrilling because here are people who are good at their jobs. They're doing their jobs to the best of their ability and against the odds and kicking ass at it. And in those moments, you see kind of the feature film the newsroom should have been, as opposed to the ongoing series, which creates fundamental flaws. And the worst part, I, again, I just think it's the basic concept of the entire series. You can't make up the news because then it's, you know, then it feels cheap and stupid. But you can't use news stories that have already been because then you're Monday morning quarterbacking. Then you have the benefit of hindsight. And then every news story is a foregone conclusion. We know how it ends. Therefore, the episodes that are built around them have minimal suspense. And you're forced to deal with a cast, a very game cast, who has been saddled with very formulaic personal subplots that don't really drive the show forward and don't get that much investment from me. I think my the most surprising thing that has been my favorite besides Will McAvoy, who I just think is an interesting, almost feminist figure, 
I think the most surprisingly uh, shocking thing that I've enjoyed has been um, watching Olivia Munn actually be in this character who I enjoy. I'm not a big Olivia Munn fan. I've never really cared for her, but I think that Sloane Sabbath is a really strong character and I'm excited to see more of her next year. Um, so she's been probably my favorite thing about the series. Um, and I also like Neil and his weird obsessions with um, Bigfoot and now it's into anonymous and like all these little, I, I like that they bring in all of like the Twitter world and, and all the subculture that goes around the news with Neil. I think he's going to be, I think he's a really fun character. All the little side characters are really interesting. Least favorite. I'm still saying Mac. I wish that they would get rid of her, recast her, do something with her character. I cannot, cannot stand that woman still. And I just, I could be perfectly fine without seeing her face every week. And I don't know if it's a balance issue. I don't know if it's Sorkin not knowing, you know, a lot of people want to give him a lot of shit about not knowing how to write women. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I really don't think Sorkin knows how to write people. I think he just has these ideals of what he thinks that people should do, but he makes really great dialogue. And so people just kind of forget about that. Cause I think that all his other characters are just as poorly written as, as Mackenzie. My favorite thing. I love when Will is on, they were saying, you know, he was brilliant when he did the bin Laden coverage. And when he's on, when he's, you know, really just driving home his point and, you know, even, you know, in the pilot, my favorite thing was when he did kind of lay into that girl, but you know, it was eloquent. It was, you know, obviously written and whatnot. But I love those moments where Will just really gets to be Will and go kind of full tilt and just say his piece without a bunch of other stuff going on around him. Those are my favorite moments. The girls are killing me. <laughs> this is not how girls behave. I mean, I get it. You know, if you're, you know, it's entertainment, it's not a documentary, but it's too much. I mean, you can't be that unhinged all the time. I mean, you can be, but it's just not realistic, especially in a newsroom setting. I just feel like if girls were running around or anyone was running around acting that, you know, unbalanced or, you know, running into stuff and falling down and it's all comical, but it doesn't make sense to me in a newsroom. It makes sense to me literally in any other working environment than something as serious as, you know, they take this news program to be and everyone around it is, you know, doing pratfalls. It just, it gets very confusing to me. So hopefully the women will calm down a little bit and then maybe I can come back. <laughs> so Andrew, what did you think was the best part of the newsroom? And what is also your least favorite part about the newsroom? Um, the best part of the newsroom for me happens to be those moments where Sorkin allows himself. I can't say is allowed because he, he's obviously allowed to do anything he wants with this show. Um, allows himself to basically revel in indulgent character moments where we get things like Mackenzie shouting f because her speech was undercut by the power returning, or um, she doesn't know how to send an email, or we have Will gutting into this college sophomore because she asked him a stupid question. My least favorite moments are the news. Um, and it's not because I don't like listening to BBC, which I love, it's because I feel like at times, and it became especially evident during the pilot, as well as the Osama Bin Laden episode, that every once in a while it takes away from these indulgent character moments, which I enjoy sometimes. All it does is distract. It doesn't progress anything. It doesn't create any tension. It doesn't do anything for the show other than to say fuck yeah we can do the news so would you agree then with uh william bibiani that the decision to set the show in the recent past was the the the, the worst decision and is the main problem it doesn't matter if it's set in reality in the 60s 70s or yesterday it's about how much focus it places on that news. We can still exist in that reality. We can still admit to the fact that there was a BP oil spill, that Osama bin Laden died, that there were riots in London, but we don't have to give it so much service that it takes away from character. Okay, so you just think it's an issue of balance. Right. 
Okay, okay. I'm going to somewhat agree with you. I, I do think, though, that the decision to set the show in the recent past was probably not the right one. And I do think that that has probably been the biggest problem for me is that there's no suspense when it comes to a lot of the subplots because we know that the show is sticking to reality. And I do think that that has has just robbed the show of a lot of dramatic possibilities. The other major thing that I really, really don't like about the show is I think that it's missed several opportunities to develop its characters in an interesting way. Um, Until this finale, most of the characters were very, very two-dimensional. And to some extent, even after this finale, many of them still are. And, you know, we've, we've had 10 hours of the series at this point. We should have more complex characters than we do. I, I, I can sort of see where that comes from. I think part of it actually is related to the thing I like most about the show, which is Sorkin's overall sense of optimism. I do think that Sorkin as a writer is genuinely hopeful about the future. And I kind of like the fact that unlike several other shows on TV, which tend to be a bit darker and a bit more cynical, Sorkin does think that people can change for the better. And he does think that the country can change for the better as well. And that seems to be what he he's trying to uh, promote in the newsroom. I like that a lot I think the problem is that he's doing it by hearkening back to this old school era of news and also this sort of old-fashioned mode of sitcom storytelling in order to do it. I don't think optimism has to go hand-in-hand with nostalgia, and it's that nostalgia that I think really kills the show at times both in terms of the show's themes and also in terms of how it's structured and its overall aesthetic. I, I do think that that's part of the reason that sh- the characters are pretty flat, for example, is because he's kind of being nostalgic and hearkening back to these old-timey sitcoms from the 90s and the 80s. So yeah, that that's what I would say is what I like and dislike about the show. I'd say I'm, I'm totally on board with what Sorkin is doing I'm, and, and the overall attitude that the show has. Not so much on board with its characters. So the defining question at this point has to be, are you there for season two? Are you in for the long haul, like Sorkin's mission to civilize? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I didn't play it in the clips that we, that, that, that we had earlier. But I asked that question to all of our guests, and there was no singular response. The answers were kind of all over the place, ranging from no, I'm definitely not going to be watching season two, to yes, I will definitely be watching season two. So I think at least within the, within the critic community, that, that's a pretty big question, is will people come back for season two? Personally, I am totally on board for season two. I liked the finale, and as I said before, I like what Sorkin is trying to do, and I like his overall tone and his overall goal, even if sometimes the execution is lacking. So I will I will give season two a chance and pray that it can overcome some of its flaws. What about you? Are you on board for season two? Will there be another another season of Navigating the Newsroom? Um, well, we can, we can talk about my fee when we're off here <laughs> to see to see if you can to see if you can retain me for a second season. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm gonna say that first of all, I'll be happy that for season two, I feel season one got rid of most of the news items that would take that balance into the into the heavy set that I don't I didn't enjoy that much with season one and it would allow for a lot more free flowing season two unless there's something Sorkin particularly hated in the news this year that I missed. 
Well, they're they, they're they're not going to start writing season two until after the presidential election. So. Oh yeah, that's happening. So. Oh, yeah, I, okay. I get the impression they're gonna wait and see how the election turns out, and then I'm I if I had to guess, I would say that season two is probably gonna focus a lot it is on the lead up to the election. It's an election year for you guys, so that's that's gonna be big. Oh, yeah. sorry, forgot about that. On the other hand. Maybe if HBO decides to advertise how many episodes Greg Matola directs, it could help me. It could help my decision. <laughs> so it sounds like you're on the fence. I'm on the fence. I mean, personally, I have to say I have a horrible track record with giving up on shows. Um, I tend to stick with them through thick and thin. Me and too. I'm, I'm still watching The Office, even though most of the time I want to shoot myself at this point. I just finished watching the season five of True Blood, and I was willing to, to, to murder every vampire in the world after season four was over. Oh, well, I thought season four of True Blood was terrible, but I thought season five was probably the best season so far. So, <laughs> um, I say it, 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 it's, it, it benefits from having a low bar. I, that is true. I, but, you know, you know th- that's actually a good example. True Blood, I think, is one... This is, was a situation where it was such a dramatic level of improvement... It that it took me completely off guard. I was ready to just give up on the show entirely. But season five won me back, and maybe season two of the newsroom could do the same. You never know. Maybe in a in a year uh, we'll have another batch of episodes, and suddenly this will be the show that everyone wanted from Aaron Sorkin. It is possible. It totally is. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see how you're feeling. In a few months, uh, maybe you will come back for another season of Navigating the Newsroom. Maybe not. So before we sign off for the last time, is there anything else that you would like to say about the newsroom? I think I'd get with Maggie. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's, that's a fair assessment. <laughs> As for me, I will just repeat what I said La- uh, last week, I think the show is much more enjoyable when you realize it's not going to be this grand life-changing or TV-changing show. When you accept its flaws and, and, and just kind of ignore them, the show is a pretty good show overall. Good enough that I'll be tuning in for a second season. I almost feel like the show would have fit better on regular broadcast TV. Like if NBC or ABC was making the newsroom, part of me thinks it would be a better show. And another part of me thinks, well, at the very least, the critical response towards the show might be a bit better. Because I do feel like by having it on HBO, that, that just that brand comes with certain expectations that maybe the, the, the newsroom inherently can't meet i don't know that that's all i i just wanted to throw that idea out there it's something i've been thinking about lately is just that idea of what a what a network brand can mean and how it might influence how we look at a show i don't know any any thoughts on that um no i mean i'm just i'm just happy to be seeing television that's enjoyable to a certain extent, I yes. don't want to give people the don't want to give people the the, the idea that I'm still that I'm going a hundred percent on the newsroom. Sorkin gets a pass. If I was grading him, if I was grading him, he gets a passing grade. I'd, I'd give the newsroom probably a B minus, maybe. I do think that you're right. This is a really great time for TV, and maybe that's why a lot of people haven't been as hot on the newsroom is because there is so much good stuff out there that now you really have to shine and you really have to be something special to sort of get people's attention and, and get them to stick with it. But uh, I think that'll wrap it up for navigating the newsroom. So maybe we'll see you in a year. Maybe not. Don't forget we have another bonus episode coming out in a few days uh, in which I talk with Professor Robert Thompson 
about the show. You definitely tune into that. He has a very, very interesting perspective on on the show. I, I need to thank our guest for this episode, William Bibiani. You can find his work over at craveonline.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at twitter.com slash William Bibiani. You can find Allison Loring and Gwyn Reyes at filmschoolrejects.com and realvixen.com. That's R-E-E-L vixen.com. And you can follow them at twitter.com slash Loring and twitter.com slash realvixen, respectively. As always, you can find all of our episodes at filmgeekradio.com. Be sure to check out our other shows like Cinema Fix and The Thin Place. Andrew, where can people find you online since they won't be able to hear you on Navigating the Newsroom? Where can they find you, and how can they get in touch with you? Okay, I guess I should go all out on the plug bag since this is the final episode. Um, I'm over at gmanreviews.com. I'm on Twitter at gmanreviews. Um, you can like it on Facebook slash gmanreviews. I also have my own podcast by the name of The Unnamed Movie Podcast, or TUMP. You can find it on iTunes, Podcast Alley, as well as a number of podcasting syndications. I'm also writing TV recaps over at Screen Invasion. I just finished the newsroom. I don't know what I'll be doing for the the upcoming fall season, but I'm sure I'll be doing something else. Um, You can go and find me there. Coming next week, Andrew will also be in on this somewhat. I'm going to be going to Toronto to cover the Toronto International Film Festival, and I'll be writing a lot of reviews and coverage for filmschoolrejects.com. So you guys should all go and read that. Um, I don't think I have anything else I can plug right now. I think that's it. All right. Well, um, I will be in Toronto as well. So who knows? Maybe we'll get a podcast or two up uh, from, the, from, from the festival. You never know. Um, I will be covering the festival for Film Geek Radio at filmgeekradio.com. So go there to check out all of my reviews and writing in the future. You can also find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash writer Andrew. All right. Andrew, for the last time, sign us off. So what you really need to ask yourself is would you really want to live in a world without Coca-Cola? This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!